Well, good morning, church. Good to see all of you. So, a big question is, do you have your Christmas shopping done? I mean, you've got 362 days. Oh, wait. I'm just kidding. Anyway, good to see all of you. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas. I hope um, that you all are healthy. Um, Because I think uh, church has been decimated by colds and flus and all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, thanks for being hardcore, for being here. It's awesome. Good to see you. Um, something I, I, how many of you, how many of you do or have done or know somebody who, who has done the whole elf on a shelf thing? Come on now. Yes. Now, for those of you who don't know, elf on a shelf is just one of those mechanisms that parents use to keep their kids to behave during the holiday season because the elf is Santa's helper and is present in the house because, you know, an all-seeing Santa Claus, isn't, you know, kids don't buy that today. So we've got Elf on the Shelf, right? So we do it too. Um, Elf on the Shelf happened about the same time Pinterest did, and oh my gosh, right? Uh, we have a good time with that in our household. Now, I was uh, walking my dog the other night <clears throat> down my street, and uh, I came across... See if I, I got it. Clear one more time. Maybe. I came across this. This is my neighbor's front yard. How naughty do your kids have to be that you've got to buy a six foot industrial size elf on the shelf? <laughs> right? I actually called my neighbor and I'm like, are you doing okay? (laughs) Because that's huge, man. Now, yeah, a little bit creepy, but here's the thing, though. Whoever came up with this is brilliant because you know that there is some parent out there somewhere that says, Billy, if you don't mind your manners, I am going to get one of those giant elves on the shelf. I'm going to put it there at Thanksgiving and leave it up on the 4th of July just to get you to mind your manners. And you You know it's true. It's true. So... Anyway, um, now fortunately I know the family and their kids aren't that bad, so it's not really the case, but I saw that and I thought, oh my word. By the way, this has nothing to do with today's message. (laughs) I just saw it and I thought, this is ridiculously funny. So, yeah, I'm six foot tall and that that cap is over my head, I'm just saying. I I should have gone up and done this, but I didn't. So anyway... That's the industrial strength. That's not elf on a shelf. That's elf in the yard. Anyway, so, all right. Moving on to uh, better things. Yes, <laughs> much better things. So, one of the great hazards that we have when we read the Bible, and, and you've heard me kind of rail on this for the last, I don't know, a couple of months. I've been talking about this. Is look, the Bible, the Bible that we have was not written in a vacuum, and therefore we can't read it in a vacuum. And so, <clears throat> one of the hazards I think that we run into, especially when we're, we're reading something like the Gospels, um, which is a, more or less a biography of Jesus, um, is to, the, the hazard is um, that we, we, we view these ancient writers as somehow less sophisticated because of how old they are. Does that make sense? You know, it's, it's kind of like the difference when you go into a museum, and you see uh, the way certain artwork is versus, say, primitive art. We, we kind of make those same kind of 
assumptions, I think, whenever we read this. At least I know that I have in the past. Um, maybe, you're, <laughs> maybe you're more mature than I am. But in the past, I have. Um, in, you know, th- this is a group of people who wrote these things when they didn't have computers. What? You know, some of us t- remember when there was no internet, by the way. And um, yeah, I'll never forget, I remember I had a guy who says, yeah, this whole World Wide Web thing, I really want to get on that. Like, yeah, me too. I had no idea what it was. So anyway, but it sounded cool. And they didn't have movies either. Can you imagine? They didn't have movies. All they had were storytelling and whatnot. And so somehow we, we tend to look at the, the authors as maybe a little less sophisticated. But the truth of the matter is they were brilliant. I mean, we have some I mean, really great literature. Um, and they had an, an, uh, an agenda, each one of them. Each one of them had some type of agenda. They had something that they wanted to communicate. And by the first century um, A.D., or what we call the Christian era, um, you have a highly developed style of storytelling. Uh, and then in these books, kind of follow along with that. And so we, we have this all here. And so Matthew, in particular, um, is writing to an, an audience, a very specific audience of, of what we would call skeptical Jews. And so he is a Jew himself. He is writing to a group of skeptical Jews, people who are skeptical that this person named Jesus is the Messiah. And, and so really what he's attempting to do in his book, keep this in mind always, is he's trying to build credibility for Jesus in a variety of different ways. Not just through the stories of what he did, but even how he's writing it. And we're going to talk about that here in a minute. And so um, Matthew contains certain features in the book that the other Gospels don't. And I think that's an important way of understanding it is that you're trying to um, put together some witnesses to who Jesus was. And so each uh, one of these authors is going to tell a slightly different story. So like for instance, Mark was the first one. It's very immediate. It's probably Peter's gospel because there are details in that particular book that you don't find anywhere else. And both Luke and Matthew borrow from Mark. Luke is written in a very Greek style. Luke was a Greek physician, and so there's a certain level of historical detail that's there because he went and he interviewed eyewitnesses. And so, again, you have different features within these different books, and I think it's really important that we remember these things. So <clears throat> when, when Matthew uh, builds credibility, he will reference um, Torah, which is um, the law, Jewish law, and prophecy, and we see that. And so he draws on these elements of the Old Testament. Um, Like, for instance, he starts the gospel, um, his own gospel, with a genealogy of Jesus. You know, where do you see that? The book of Genesis, right? Because apparently Jews are really interested in who's your daddy. You know, it's really kind of an important thing. How does this person relate to that person, and what's the family tree look like? And so in Genesis, if you want to know, it's in Genesis chapter 5. You can go look it up. That's kind of the first major genealogy that we see. But genealogy is a big thing. And so Matthew, trying to build credibility for Jesus, starts with a genealogy. Makes sense, right? He's actually tailoring it to that particular audience. Um, In fact, Matthew writes Jesus' early life parallel with Israel's history. Did you know that? We're going to see that here in just a minute. It's absolutely fascinating. You read through basically the first five to seven chapters of Matthew and you see this parallel with Israel's history. And there's a reason for that. He's trying to build credibility among his his audience, which are skeptical Jews. 
And so I'm going to try to point um, some of that out as we go through um, this particular story today. So I'm going to invite you to uh, turn with me to um, um, Matthew chapter 2. Oops, there we go. Matthew chapter 2. I'm, I'm going to read this through. I wasn't going to at first, but I think this is important that we hear this again. Um, I want to read through this, and then I'm going to try to pick it apart and make some comment as we go along. So, Matthew chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is uh, the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all of the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, uh, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. His pants were on fire at that point. <clears throat> After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, uh, when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Uh, then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, <clears throat> took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled, uh, and so was fulfilled uh, what the Lord had said through the prophet, "Out of Egypt I called my son." When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. <laughs> yeah, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what uh, was said uh, through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and, and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that um, Archelaus uh, was reigning in Judah in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So it was fulfilled. Uh, what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord, and we believe it. 
Now, we read through all of that, and there's a lot of stuff that's going on in there, but there are some things that we really need to point out. So, after Herod, uh, let's see, let's go back. Is my thing working or not? All the way back. Yep, there we go. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in Judea, during the time of King Herod. Now, we can actually plot when this is. Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that we often do, at least I remember doing this when I was a kid, is that we would do a a Christmas pageant. Now we do Star Wars Christmas pageants, but um, we did Christmas pageants. And it was really cool because you got to wear your father's bathrobe, right? And, And if you were a king, you had not only a special outfit, you had a special crown, at least in my church, and you had the gift box. And it was really important whoever had the gold one. I don't know why, but because everyone understood what gold was and no one really knew what frankincense was because it sounded a lot like Frankenstein and nobody wanted that. I'm just saying, okay? This is, this is my childhood, not yours, okay? And people are like, oh, this explains a lot about him. Okay, moving on. Yeah, so, what happens, though, is that we try to tell the entire story at the same time. So we have Mary and Joseph, they show up, and then the shepherds show up. And then within a few minutes, then you have the three kings who show up, right? Because there's only three kings, because that's, you know, three, we three kings of Orientar. You know, it doesn't say that, by the way. It just says Magi. It doesn't tell us how many. I hate to blow that one for you, but it's true. There could have been upwards of seven, according to tradition. But the point is, is that when we have our, our Easter pageant, everything happens on the same night. Man, that was a busy barn, right? But here we find out that the Magi actually show up later, upwards of almost two years. And if you think about it, if they saw the star at the, at the point the child was born, it took them a long time to travel. Many months worth. And so here we can see uh, that you've got this time lapse that has occurred in the story. And so, um, yeah, maybe two years or so. And also notice, where did they come from? East. So, when Adam and Eve were evicted from the Garden of Eden, where did they go? East. To a place called Nod, which in Hebrew means wandering. Isn't that interesting? So you have a group of wise men from the east. So human beings left the presence of God and went east, and now human beings are coming back from the east towards the presence of God again. Fascinating, isn't it? See, there's something that's going on here that Matthew is trying to build some credibility. And... Um, They saw a star. Many ancient cultures associated stars with royal births. This is not a particularly new idea. But it goes on in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. Yeah, that's not a surprise here. Because anytime you challenge power structures, you're going to cause a little bit of disruption. Um, We we know this not just in politics, but we can also find this in, in business. And by the way, Jesus challenges all power structures. Please remember that during the next election, okay? So keep that in mind. Um, What I find really fascinating about this, though, 
<laughs> it's really interesting that the non-Jewish people actually recognized the star, but the Jewish people didn't because they weren't looking for it. Isn't that interesting? It was actually noted by um, scholars from a completely different culture. We saw his star. He was born king of the Jews, and all of Jerusalem is disturbed because this is news to them. We talk about disruptive. So Herod learns of a prophecy, and he sets a plan to protect his power. He's going to find the new king and uh, um, going to have the people uh, report back to him so that he can worship. Yeah, worship him with a knife, probably, most likely. And he goes on. After uh, they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Isn't it really interesting that when they saw the star again and when they saw the child, what does it say they were? Overjoyed? And what was Herod? Disturbed. You see the contrast that's happening here? It's a really stark comparison between the two. Hmm. And they presented their gifts, gold, frankincense, uh, and myrrh. Um, by the way, there's been a lot of study on those things. Um, someday I'll do one. Uh, but I think it's, it's interesting that they chose those three things, at least those are the three things to, to mention. Each one has their own specific purpose uh, to it. But having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So they kind of skipped the follow-up with Herod, which is probably a good idea, I would, I would think. And now, this is where it gets interesting. This is where it gets really interesting, at least it does for me. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. In the Old Testament, who else dreamed? Another Joseph, right? Yeah. Where did Joseph go? Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. And when all of Israel went to Egypt, all of Jacob's sons, why did they go? To escape famine? See the parallel? There is a movement in the text that's happening here. There's a movement that's happening in Matthew from Israel down to Egypt. There is a parallel going on between the early life of Jesus and Israel's history. Why? Credibility. He's trying to build credibility for, for Jesus as Messiah. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Stay there until I tell you. Remember, Israel stayed in Egypt for a long period of time. Now, of course, they were enslaved you know, during that period of time. Uh, that's obviously not so good. But the point is, is that you see that there's this parallel that's actually happening. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. See, apparently Herod and his advisors didn't read all of the prophecies because they missed this one. Hundreds of years earlier, God had anticipated Herod's plan. And he chose to do something to protect the child. It's interesting. And of course, you know the story. 
When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. Yeah, he was. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem in its vicinity who were two years old and under. To keep his power, Herod carries out the most evil of all plans imaginable against children. Never, ever underestimate what people will do to hold on to their power. They will lie, they will cheat, they will compromise, do immoral things, and they will claim that it's for some greater good. It's not that simple. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in what? A dream? (laughs) There we go again. To Joseph in, in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. It's all clear. You can head back. But Joseph is still cautious, which is a good idea because Herod's son is now sitting on the throne and you never really know about sons and their dads and agendas and that kind of a thing. So he goes to another another part, the northern part of Israel, the redneck part of Israel, (laughs) in in the area of Galilee and settles in a town called Nazareth which would have really been, you know, Mary's hometown, Nazareth. And there's a play on words here because he would be known as a Nazarene. Um, that's a whole other story, but the Nazarene was a very particular um, type of vow that certain people would take. Very holy. But the story and the history of all this is, is, is fascinating, I think. And, and I really like the fact that Matthew's trying to do something with literature in order to build Jesus' credibility among Jewish people. I think that's a really interesting take on all this, and, and it, it helps us understand the text and why Matthew is writing things the way that he does. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but I think there's something else that's going on underneath all of this. I, I think that there's a, another theme that's running um, in the background. And, and it's, it goes something like this. It's, it's the idea that God um, took care of Israel by sending them to Egypt at one point in their history. And later, he rescued them out of slavery. In the same way, God took care um, of a different Joseph and his family in Egypt and through Jesus, he'd rescue all of humanity from the slavery of sin and death. Do you see that? You've got these two things that are going on. One is very, very real in the sense of kind of life and death and flesh and bone and you know, slavery and that sort of thing. The other is much more cosmological. It's a lot more theological. But it's nonetheless, nonetheless it's just as real. The two things. And so this is where we kind of land our series, this idea of, of presence. And if you remember, when we first read the account of Joseph, the thing that we learned is that God is present in our uncertainty. There's this moment where Joseph's like, I don't know what to do. And so he decides that he's going to divorce Mary quietly, and yet God intervenes in a dream, by the way. And he intervenes, and he says, no, no, don't be afraid. Go ahead. So God is present with us in our uncertainty. And from Mary, we learned that God is present in our shame. 
Those things that we're not proud of, those things that we have to deal with, sometimes created by someone else, God is still present with us. And then, of course, on Christmas Eve, we talked about Jesus himself, Emmanuel, God with us. And so God is present in her joy, and he wants to be with you, very simply. But here's what we can learn from the Magi. And this is the thing where I think it's good for us to remember this as we go into a brand new year. And, and let's be honest, this year's going to be an interesting year. There are some economic issues that... Uh, Maybe some problems that are going to come home to roost, I think. It's an election year. That'll be fun. Um, I'm going to stay off Facebook. I'll be fasting for Facebook for most of the election cycle. Um, but probably some other things, too, that I'm not thinking about. But here's the thing that the Magi teaches us, and this is the thing I want you to remember when you walk out the door. If you forget everything else, here it is. God is present in our danger. Please remember that, that God wants to be with you, and God is present in your danger as well as your uncertainty and shame and all those other things. But when things are dangerous, God is still present, even in our danger. And so my challenge to all of us as we head into 2020, um, look for where God is present or where he might be present. And you may not feel it. And that's the thing. Feelings are tricky. You might not feel it, but he's there. And so I just encourage everyone to stay close. We've kind of had this entire year where we've been talking about the presence of God. And the thing of it is, is that we're the ones who typically have to lean in because God never moves. And so as you go into this new year, remember that he's present in all of those things, that he's present with you. Now, whether you're just dealing with stuff from the past or if you're ready for a new adventure, or if you're um, just trying to sort things out in your own life or in a relationship, all those things, God is present in all of those things. Keep that in mind. And I suppose that I can also say you gotta trust him. Not only is he present, but that you can trust him, that he's trustworthy.